Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. They encamped at Ebenezer, and the Philistines encamped at Aphek. The Philistines drew up in line against Israel, and when the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. And when the people came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of hosts, who is enthroned on the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. As soon as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout so that the earth resounded. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shout, they said, what does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And when they learned that the ark of the Lord had come into the camp, the Philistines were afraid. For they said, a God has come into the camp. And they said, woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us. Who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. Take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So the Philistines fought and Israel was defeated and they fled every man to his home. And there was a very great slaughter. For 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell, and the ark of God was captured, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. Skipping to verse 19. Now Eli's daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, was pregnant, about to give birth. And when she heard the news that the ark of God was captured, and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed and gave birth, for her pains came upon her. And about the time of her death, the women attending her said to her, Do not be afraid, for you have borne a son. But she did not answer or pay attention. And she named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel, because the ark of God had been captured, and because her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, The glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God has been captured. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, so often what our eyes can see, what our minds can perceive, is not what's really going on in the world around us. And so we pray that this morning you would give us eyes to see Jesus, ears to perceive the voice of your Spirit, and hearts to follow after him wherever he leads. Father, help us to seek after you in all things that we do. In Christ's name that we pray, amen. You may be seated. Gott mint uns. I don't think I pronounced it correctly the first service. Not sure I pronounced it correctly that time. But it's German for God is with us. And it's the slogan that was inscribed on the 
Nazi soldiers' belt buckles as millions of them stormed across Europe, committing atrocities on and off the battlefield. God is with us, they said. Of course, they weren't alone in claiming that God was on our side. In our own country's civil war, the South believed that they were the special people of God, and they called out for God to help them, even as they turned a blind eye to their own law-breaking, man-stealing, forbidden by God, even as they closed their ears to the cries of freedom from their slaves. God is with us. The North wasn't much better. They saw themselves as God's avenging army, executing righteousness and justice, even as they burned and pillaged their way across the South. During the Crusades, the Christian armies cried out, Deus Volt, God wills it, as they marched to the Holy Land to free it from Muslim control. Oh, but first, let's do a detour and sack the Christian city of Constantinople on our way. Too often in the history of God's people, the sovereign has been made the subject. The power of God has become a means to our earthly ends. God is on our side. That should be a comforting thought. So why do God's people get it so wrong so often? This morning we're going to see from this sad story of the defeat of Israel, the capture of the ark of God, we're going to see that God's ways are often not our ways. But moments of great defeat are also moments when God is often most at work in our lives and in the world around us. Samuel now is a prophet. Remember at the end of chapter 3, we read that the voice of the Lord is being heard again in Shiloh. We have God's man in place to speak to God's people But instead of a period of national revival and the people of Israel drawing closer to the Lord, we read in verse 1 that Israel is being dogged by an old enemy, the Philistines. The Philistines live on the coast in what is now called the Gaza Strip, which has filled our news feeds and television screens over these last couple of days. Of course, the Philistines are not the Palestinians. The Philistines actually probably immigrated to that, area, to that area from Crete. They were probably descendants of the Minoan civilization. And they brought with them advanced weaponry and a formidable army. And they were regular tormentors of Israel. In fact, as they remind one another in their battle cry, the Hebrews have been their slaves. Now, it isn't unusual to read about Israel fighting the Philistines. In fact, one interesting experience you could have later today is to go and use your Bible app or search for it on the computer every time in the Old Testament that Philistine or Philistines is used. 
And really starting from the Old Testament, starting from the book of Genesis, and particularly in the book of Judges and in Joshua, you hear about these ongoing battles between the Philistines and Israel. So it's not unusual to read about a battle, but when we get to verse 2 of chapter 4, and we read that Israel is defeated, and that 4,000 men have died, we should immediately pause and think. Israel was never supposed to be defeated in the promised land. God had promised Israel that, hey, if you're faithful to me, this will be a land of peace. If any enemy comes up against you, you will defeat that enemy. So if Israel is defeated, it's a sign that they have not been faithful to God. It's a sign that God is punishing them. Has that ever happened to you? Do you sometimes look around your life and think, what has gone so wrong? Why are, why are things spinning out of control around me? What is God trying to tell me when I look and my life is chaotic, when I feel like I am under attack, when defeat after defeat is laid at my feet? What's God trying to teach me? Well, interestingly, in verse 3, that's exactly what the Israel's elders do. Look at verse 3 with me. When the people came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? They've got really good theology. They recognize that it's not because the Philistines have better weaponry. It's not because they're better trained. They recognize that the Lord himself is at work in this. Well, what should they have done next? Well, they could have humbled themselves. Well, if, if God is against us, we should turn and humble ourselves before him. Or they could have called to Shiloh where Samuel was ministering and they could have said, Samuel, you, you have the, the word from the Lord now. Come and tell us what God is trying to communicate to us. But they didn't do either of those things. Instead, they go on. Let us bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. Now, the ark, of course, was that gold box that sat in the tabernacle and in the temple of Israel. A box that when you would lift it open, it had the ten, the tablets, the stone tablets of the Ten Commandments. It had Aaron's flowering rod that he had used in the presence of Pharaoh. It had the jar of manna. All of that was contained within that box. And on top of that box, with, covered with gold and with two angels hovering over the top, was what was called the mercy seat. And there on the mercy seat, the high priest would sprinkle the blood of the atoning sacrifice once a year for Israel's sins. Back in Exodus chapter 25, God promised Israel there, right there at that spot, that's where I will meet you. That's what they decide to bring down from the tabernacle, to lead them into battle. And who brings it? Verse 4, Hophni and Phinehas. 
the evil priests that God has already promised he's going to kill. This ain't going to go well, folks. Oh, Eric, you're being too hard on these guys. Because after all, I know my Bible, and I know that in Numbers chapter 10, whenever the ark would set out, Moses would call out, Arise, O Lord. Let your enemies be scattered. Let those who hate you flee from you. And didn't Joshua, in Joshua chapter 6, didn't he have the ark out in front of the people of Israel marching around Jericho seven times before the great shout, before the trumpet blast, before the walls came tumbling down? And of course, even more modern, a more modern theological insight from Indiana Jones that we have. Remember Marcus Brody, Indy's good friend, He said, the army which carries the ark before it is invincible. Well, that's exactly what the Philistines thought. Look at verse 8. Woe to us, they cry. Who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. We can quibble with the theology of the Philistines, their understanding of redemptive history, but it's obvious that some rumor has spread around the nations of Israel about how strong God is. And so the Philistines are afraid when the ark comes into the camp of the Israelites. They wonder, what chance do they have against such powerful magic? And there's the key word, magic. And this is the problem. Israel is treating God just like their pagan neighbors treat their gods. They think that God can be manipulated, a lever pulled here, a button pushed there, a sacrifice offered here, a prayer lifted up there, and soon you can move and maneuver this God to do whatever you want Him to do. One writer calls this the lucky rabbit's foot theology. Not seeking God, but seeking to control God. Not submitting to God, but submitting God to us. To use God for our own plans, for our own efforts. And aren't we tempted to do this? We use God to grow our business. We use God to get compliant and obedient kids. We use God to drum up the vote. We use God to justify our family's plans, our personal plans, our national plans and aims. As long as we can baptize it in some religious language, people will flock to it. We use God for success. Presuming on God is an easy trap to fall into. But instead of manipulating God to bless our plans, we need to ensure that we are aligning ourselves with God's plans. That means that we have to turn away from technique 
You see, technique is how you manipulate a god. Technique is how you make magic happen. It's the right incantation. It's the right spell. It's the right material to make sure that you have control of the power. What sort of things do you use in your own life to ensure that God is pleased with you? That God will answer you when you call. Oh, I didn't have my morning devotions this morning. Now maybe God won't come to my aid. When you start thinking that way, you are using God. We have to turn away from technique in order to engage God himself as a person. Seek his face in worship. Evaluate yourself according to his law. Follow after him by faith. And when we start doing that, strangely, we sometimes discover that our search for success, our search for power, our search for control has actually led us farther and farther away from the God that we think we're using. And of course, that's exactly what happened to Israel. They tried to harness God's power for their own purposes. But God isn't a cosmic genie. He isn't a lucky rabbit's foot. He won't allow himself to be used that way. So on the second day of battle, it wasn't 4,000 men who died. It was 30,000 men who died. And it wasn't just an embarrassment that Israel had fallen before the Philistines. No, even the Ark of the Covenant of God has been lost. Two of their significant religious leaders, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead. The defeat of Israel that day wasn't just a bad day. It was the worst day imaginable. The capture of the ark led Israel to think that God himself had been defeated. Verse 22, the widow of Phinehas, Eli's daughter-in-law, hearing the news calls her son, we, uh, we use the language Ichabod, Ichabod Crane. It's Ichabod. The glory is gone. God is gone. God has gone into exile. Our God went up against the Philistines' God, and our God lost. He must have been weaker than the Philistines' God because he's been captured by that pagan army. And if our God is gone, then all hope is gone. But on this day of terror, and desolation, when Eli's family has been decimated, when the ark of God has been captured, something interesting is going on behind the scenes. You see, even though Israel thought that maybe their God had lost, you and I know that that's not possible. That the Philistines' gods were no true gods themselves, They were just dumb idols. Nothing that had any power. God is the true God. He could have wiped out armies as the Old Testament talks about over and over again with simply a thought. 
and yet he allows himself to be captured. And then what happens? Within just a few days, the power of the Philistines will have been broken. And within just a few years, the Philistines as a people will have been defeated forever when David kills their champion, Goliath, not with technical, sophisticated weaponry, but with five smooth stones and a sling. Hundreds of years of oppression and affliction are being brought to an end. And Israel can't see it. All they can see is defeat. All they can see is is terror. But what seems like defeat, the capture of the ark of God, leads to ultimate victory as God decimates his enemies. And we're going to read more about this when we get to chapter 5. That's called a teaser for all you at home. But I simply want you to see this. What seems like the worst day in Israel's history is actually a turning point. See, God had told Israel, you'll never be defeated if you're obedient to me. But when you turn away from me, you will be defeated by your enemies. When you turn away from me, you will be carried off into exile, serving in foreign lands. And then what does God do? He subjects himself to the very curse he threatened Israel with so that the Israelites can receive an unexpected mercy. Does that sound like anything else God has ever done? Does that sound like any other day that seemed like it was the worst day in history? It's why we call that terrible day when Jesus died on the cross, Good Friday. Sometimes the darkest day is actually the day God is most at work for us. The good news of Christianity is that God, in fact, is with us. But that's not so that our worldly dreams and aspirations can be baptized with a little bit of religion. No, He's with us to redeem us, to rescue us from sin. God is with us. Or as you might say it in Hebrew, Emmanuel. Jesus is the ark of God. He is clothed not with gold, but with flesh. Paul in Romans chapter 3, verse 25 says, He is the mercy seat. The one where God's wrath against sin is satisfied. Friends, can't you see? Can't you see that the ways that we are tempted to use God are too small? They are too short-sighted. They are too limited to what we can see and what we can perceive around us. We look to God to advance our own selfish ambitions. But He is at work making all of His enemies His footstool. 
He is at work building a new creation. God is not there to be drafted into your plans. Instead, he beckons you to follow him. God is not there to be carried around like a mascot so everybody knows that we're on the right team. No, we are carried along with him in his victory parade against sin and death, his triumph over Satan and the grave. Let's pray. Father, just as C.S. Lewis once wrote that like children in a slum, we are satisfied making mud pies in the gutter, unable to even comprehend what a holiday at the sea might be. Oh, Father, forgive us for trying to use you to advance our own agendas. Instead, lift up our eyes to see the great work of redemption and recreation, a work that is not our work, a work that is given to us as a gift to enjoy and experience to participate in. And Father, when the day seems dark around us, help us to face it with courage, knowing that Jesus has already achieved the victory for us. And give us eyes to walk in it, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.